welcome back. I'm excited to introduce our guests now for the BM Pro segment, Dylan LeClaire and Sam Rule, and I believe we have a special guest as well, guys. Let's kick things off. Dylan and Sam, you guys put out an awesome report at the end of last week talking about some Bitcoin equities as well as just sort of the macro environment. Do you want to give a quick overview on that before we dive into today's topic with TXMC? Yeah, I mean, we just talked about, and it's been kind of a focus of ours pretty uh, of late, is just the correlation between Bitcoin and equities. Obviously, that's been top of mind in 2020, but we kind of dug a little bit deeper and kind of looked at Bitcoin-related equities relative to Bitcoin and the historical volatility of those, right? So every, you know, likes to to focus on, on Bitcoin and the relative underperformance as of late. But, you know, if you look historically at rallies throughout Throughout equity markets and Bitcoin and bear markets, they can really rip your face off to the upside, right? Especially short positions. And so especially that the crypto-related equities had a huge kind of last month or so. Um, so that was our focus on our Friday piece. But enough of me. I really want to welcome TXMC to the studio and uh, excited to have you on because you've been putting out some absolutely killer content. Thanks, guys. Glad to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Where did these just absolutely banger charts threads come from, man? Just like big picture, you know, coin macro. We've been wowed away and really kind of inspired by some of that stuff. I don't know if, you know, if you want to give a shout out to what you do at Beta Soup, just let listeners know about that a little bit first. Yeah, sure. Thanks for the compliment. Yeah, I make, I just kind of been exploring, you know, the world of finance and economics, trying to get a better understanding of the world that we're living in. We're in kind of, I don't know, it feels like we're in a really important phase of our history here, at least for our lifetimes. And so I've been trying to understand it. You know, I'm just kind of a relentlessly curious person. And so as I go along and I think I find cool things or I, you know, discover some insight, I just kind of post it on Twitter and I really enjoy making custom charts and things like that. And so thankfully we have a lot of cool economic data that's available for free thanks to our tax dollars. And so I just kind of go crazy with that stuff. And my, my channel that you mentioned is called Alpha Beta Soup on YouTube. And I try to make entertaining videos talking about the things I'm looking at, explaining them because, you know, I'm, I'm just learning like anyone else. And so by explaining it to other people, it helps me to get a better grasp of it. And so that's really what started it. And it seems to be going pretty well now, about a year in. Love it. Yeah. I mean, would love to, I guess, and this is, you know, pretty big picture and we could just dive right into it, but you put out a pretty banger thread. I think it was like, I don't know, a week or two ago. And it started off with financial cabin pressure is rising as quickly as price. And I think I sent it over to the live team and, and maybe they can just kind of go through it and show it for the viewers on YouTube as you go. But you want to kind of give just a quick and obviously not quick, but just an overview of that thread and your kind of broader macro thesis and tied into Bitcoin. And then we can kind of dive into the individual parts as we go. Sure. It's kind of hard to know where to start, you know? Yeah. It's right in. a big... Yeah, of course. We're at, a, we're at a tough spot because of the excesses of the last couple of years in particular. You know, we're, the Fed and also the economy are kind of paying the piper now for some of those decisions. And I think that because of their flawed approach and some of the inherent weakness in the metrics they use to determine if they're doing a good job, the Fed's attempts to control inflation, which is already out of their hands, are likely, in my view, going to lead us into a very tough spot economically that will be difficult to get out of. But even bigger picture than what might happen over the next few months, which is which you know we could talk about and it's hard to know the exact sequence of events, bigger picture, it does seem like we are kind of in a culmination phase of a long-term debt cycle, of a long societal arc you know, which is talked about in the fourth turning. And there's kind of a, just a, a culmination of events that are all taking place over the last few years and what appears to be the upcoming few years. And what I really talk about in the thread here is what I think is going on right now with the economy, how I don't think the Fed is going to be able to tighten as far as their plans express that they would like to. And that's in large part due to the mountains of debt that our economic system is saddled with. The entire global financial system really is saddled with debt. We have over $300 trillion of debt dollared in USD around the world, both public and private. And those have a significant cost to maintain. And so when you hear about these tightening plans in an effort to control inflation, which is completely out of the hands of the central banks, it, it really seems like they're aiming for a target that they can't achieve. 
And, you know, when you see what happens to debt-based systems throughout history, they really, they get to a point where, you know, there's so much leverage in the system, they must continually expand or the weight of their promises of their interest rate obligations collapse the system. And, you know, when societies have gone through that in the past, the way I kind of end my thread here is tying it back to Bitcoin, which is part of my kind of long-term thesis about why I invest in it. Societies in the past that have engaged in fiat experiments have always met with economic collapse. And in the wake of that disaster, society eventually returns back to hard assets, to commodity-based monies, to sound money. And for the first time in our story as a species, I believe, first of all, I believe we're coming up to one of those phases and then that, that it's, you know, very good chances I'm placing my bets that it happens in our lifetime. And the new wrinkle that I see now is that where in the past the escape valve was to, you know, gold and copper coins to silks and other commodities, in some cases to other currencies that are cash based. Those were the escape valves, but now we have Bitcoin. We have a, you know, digital, borderless, unconfiscatable bearer asset that people can channel their wealth into as their fiat is destroyed. And so that's kind of the core of my investment thesis. And when you see everything going on in the world, you know, it it, it really feels like we're we're in one of those phases where when we look back, you know, 50 years from now, we look back and we say, wow, that was really like a pivot point for that generation. I think we're in that now. I want to, you got a cue. If I could just really quickly, I want to ask a question, TXMC. The very first chart that you introduce where you're essentially showing population in each little subsect, the thing I found so surprising was, you know, while we see almost minimal to no growth in the prime working age groups, the older groups are drastically increasing their sort of total amount of population. What can you break this down? What, how does this strain our economy? How does this strain our global financial systems? Sure. And you know, when you this is the US population broken up by age, each of the colored columns across the chart are an age group. And what we've seen, what we can identify here, this data goes from, I think, like 1998 to last year. And it really encapsulates what's going on with the labor force. And it has significant implications for the future of the economy. And those are, we are now in a phase where the largest U.S. generation in history, which were the boomers, are at retirement age, right? That really began in 2010, which was 65 years after the end of World War II. And that's retirement age in the United States. Once we got to that point, retirement became a significant net drag on labor participation because we had so many people entering the twilight years of their life. And also because of advances in medicine, people are living significantly longer than they used to. So because of those two forces, the older population of the United States is exploding. And this is actually happening in other Western nations as well, but the U.S. data is the one that I impact here. And it has a couple of implications. One of those being that as people get older, they participate less in labor, particularly after the age of about 50, 55. And you can really see that if you're looking at my chart after the yellow groups, you start to get into age 55 and age 60, and you can see the black line, which represents labor participation starts falling off and it falls like 10 or 15% every five years. And this is data. This is 25 years of data here that we're looking at. So as people get older, they want to work less. They're ready to retire. They've put in decades of labor and they're ready to enjoy their twilight years, right? But we now have more and more of our population entering this aspect of their lives. We're also having fewer children at the same time that we are living longer and experiencing this boom of older portions of our population. So the actual pool of available labor into the future looks very different than what it did in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s when this massive generation of Americans was in their prime working age years, when they were in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s, and they were working at the, you know, the highest clip that they would in their lives normally. They were buying homes. Their consumer spending was driving the economy. Well, many of those people now are considerably older. 
they have wealth, but by the nature of them being older, they spend less. And while some of them may come back to work as higher costs threaten their fixed income budgets, right? Some of those people, even though they've got some income, they'll have to go back to work. And we can see to some degree, some people are going back to work that are that entered retirement in the last couple of years. But there's a significant sea change occurring in the demographics of the labor force. And as we go forward, if there are fewer people available to work productive jobs and support economic output, that puts a lot of pressure on the force of innovation to try to fill that void, which is something Jeff Booth talks a lot about. You know, if you've ever read his book, The Price of Tomorrow, he talks quite a bit about how inflation, how innovation can be a deflationary force. Well, if that can't fill the void and sustain society's embedded expectation of perpetual growth, then the only person who can step in at that point is the government via stimulus and creating artificial growth. And so, and, you know, I haven't even mentioned the actual entitlement costs, the healthcare and social service costs of an exploding aging population. You know, that's another force that kind of weighs on government budgets to where we need continued growth and continued output to, to help to support those costs. So we're really entering an odd, I wouldn't call it odd, but it's a new phase demographically where we used to have strong labor to support the economy even as we went through periods of economic weakness as we go forward over the next 10 15 20 years as another 50 million americans in a retirement age those forces start to look drastically different and it becomes more and more likely that stimulus kind of has to help fill some of that void if innovation can't do it TX, I want to pick your brain on this. I was listening to Luke Roman yesterday and, and earlier today as well. Um, mm -hmm. He was on a recent podcast and he was talking about how, you know, there's since I think post great financial crisis, the powers that be, if you will, the World Bank, IMF, the Fed, they're like the guys that have, you know, an understanding of this, even if they, you know, don't always show it. We're talking about how, you know, the public debt, especially in the U.S., uh, was unsustainably high and, you know, these kind of long-term debt cycles have to be dealt with in some way. And so they talk about, it was this paper published by the IMF called uh, the liquidation of, oh, I'm going to bundle the-, the Liquidation of government debt. Yeah, there we go. And if we guys, if we want to go to TX's profile and just scroll, I think like four or five posts down, he has a great chart on just kind of GDP, public debt, and then public debt to GDP. And so- Interestingly enough, right, the kind of the playbook here that they outlined and they first published this piece in 2011, right? So, so over a decade ago was that, you know, there's a couple of ways to deal with these, you know, very high debt levels and, you know, you could default austerity, like that's not politically feasible. You can't, you're not going to default if you can print your own currency. The chart's just a little more down guys, just a couple more. It's the next one. Yeah. And so interestingly enough, right? Like they got public debt to GDP down from 136%. I think it, your chart is showing maybe annual, but on a quarter to quarter basis, they reached as high as 136 and now it's 124, right? So they, with a combination of high inflation and low rates, which was outlined in the paper as one of the ways to, to do this, um, they actually brought the debt to GDP levels lower. So that's kind of the playbook here is like, okay, aside from default, we're in a debt spiral. How do we do it? Well, if we run inflation hot for years, not too high because it gets, you know, it's, it gets uh, politically unpopular, which we're seeing today. But if we do it just high enough and keep rates just low enough, we can erode the real value of this debt and maybe you know, theoretically escape. And it worked. But now we're seeing it's so interesting that the playbook is working, you know, quote unquote working, not for the working class, but just for the system in general, right? To survive and sustain itself long term. But there's obviously a ton of social discontent with the solution, right? So now they're actually reversing. And raising rates into an economic slowdown. And it's just going to, in my opinion, exacerbate this entire problem, right? As, as tax receipts fall lower, as real kind of productivity falls lower because of, of tighter monetary and financial conditions, we're back to, the, you know, we're back to square one in terms of the problem of too much debt and not enough real productivity. So kind of what are your thoughts here on maybe the short to intermediate term, as well as, you know, we've been talking about the long term, but, you know, Obviously, everybody's favorite question, and no one has the answer to it, is like when pivot. Luke Roman was saying August, which I think is, you know, really respect the hell out of Luke and his opinions on things. I think that's a little bit early. It's aggressive. Um, that's very aggressive. But just in terms of, you know, I think the train's coming off the tracks real fast here. Sam and I are joking. We send each other economic data, you know, every day. 
and we've yet to send to see one good looking chart over the last month with just all this like the deterioration of data and public sentiment but just kind of what are your thoughts on on you know the rest of 2022 and maybe 2023 yeah i sorry i got some water in my throat (laughs) no worries went down the wrong pipe all right yeah you know that liquidation of government debt paper It's really interesting because it does outline the playbook, which is allow inflation to run hot, <clears throat> suppress yields so that they're below inflation, and over time, the debt just kind of dissolves away. But the problem that they have run into now, which you alluded to, Dylan, is the inflation has gotten too high, right? It's It can't sit at 8 9% <clears throat> year over year. Uh, and part of that reason it's so high is because of things out of the control of the Fed at this point, you know, supply supply chain constraints, China's zero COVID policy, and Russia invading Ukraine, all of those have exacerbated what really started in 2020. Obviously, fiscal stimulus created a lot of demand. And then, you know, after we reopened the economy, that didn't help either. But inflation has gotten far out of control for them. And so I think that the playbook of, oh, let's just let it run a little steamy, as Yellen, Janet Yellen has even said in the past, like, oh, you know, we're open to the idea, before she was Treasury Secretary, I think back when she ran the Fed, she said something to the extent of, you know, it's even okay for us to let inflation run above target for a period of time, as long as the economy seems like it's doing okay. And you would think maybe that, maybe they're doing that to a degree here, maybe they don't want inflation to just all of a sudden vanish back down to 1% because it is helping whittle away the debt. Like you mentioned on my chart, it is annual. If I if you look at it by quarter, it does go up to 136, but my chart was an annual average. And But you can see it goes up to about 130 or so, and it's come down to about 124, 125% debt to GDP. So it's it has worked to a degree, but because it's so high and because you know there are some serious structural issues in the economy that might make high costs remain stubborn. It's driving a lot of social unrest, like kind of just simmering under the surface. It's flat out, you know, revolt in certain countries. But here in the United States, it's still just kind of brewing under the surface. It's obviously the number one topic for voters in a midterm election year. And I think in some ways, you know, like you said, you and you and Sam are like looking at all this data and it just keeps getting worse. And you're absolutely right. And in it, it feels like in some ways that they're just trying to keep the wheels on the bus until we get through the election. Right. Because then afterwards, they can all kind of relax and we can just kind of let the economy deteriorate. Because I think if they don't want to have to talk about stimulating the economy or helping cover costs for you know, working class citizens who lose their jobs because they've caused so much economic stress before we even get to the election, right? And so, I don't know, they're in a really tough position here. Like I said, there are a lot of signs that maybe inflation kind of sticks around, that it doesn't come down, back down to two or two and a half percent anytime soon. Maybe it stays elevated at four or five or six percent or worse. And if that's the case, what does it look like when the Fed does have to flip dovish in that environment? You know, when people are forced to spend considerably more on non-discretionary things than they were than they did in the past, you know, shelter and food and gas to drive to their job. What does that look like for the economy? You know, if they can't spend freely and drive expansion and speculate and do all the things that really produce an exciting bull market for market participants, how do we create that in an environment with stubbornly high costs for things that people must pay for. I don't know that we have a good answer for that. There's certainly not a recent model for that exact environment and definitely not in the QE era. And, you know, every time in the past, like the last thing or one of the things you mentioned, when is the Fed going to pivot? You know, when they pivoted in 2020, which produced that, you know, hilarious, absurd, straight up market for so long, CPI was at one and a half percent and the market fell 35 percent in a single month. So the environment was quite different. It was much more panicky. This future was even less certain than it is now. And inflation was considerably lower. But that's not where we are now. So I think that they, they none of the outcomes available to them are particularly attractive at this point. I want to, Dylan, if I can jump in for a hot sec here. TX, one of the things you kind of bring up is like just 
some of the outlandish things that have come out of some of these government officials' mouths. You quoted Janet Yellen. To a degree, though, they have been not only wrong, but like so gloriously wrong, especially over the last 12 months with their calls on inflation. And now we're having Janet Yellen go on Meet the Press over the weekend saying that, oh, recession's probably not an issue. And we're hearing this conversation go on and on. How much of this is purely them trying to window dress for, like you allude to, the election versus them actually seeing some issues in the economy and trying to attempt to remedy those issues? Oh, I think it's absolutely window dressing. So like the pulpit is the most powerful tool for monetary policy these days. It's the most effective. You get the quickest response. And you know, if you look at January to now, the Fed has done exceedingly little and the market has done a lot, right? They've done 90% of the work. The Fed is still, by, by the measure of this exact moment, still exorbitantly accommodative compared to past history, right? The, the rates are still considerably low are extremely low. What are they like one and a quarter percent, one, 1.75, something like that. Fed funds rate and, you know, Q, QT's only been running for a month. They've barely gotten $19 billion net off of their balance sheet. So the, there's, the market has done most of the work because of their jawboning uh, and forward guidance. Even when it comes in the form of Janet Yellen talking about whether or not she thinks recession is likely, that's almost like another facet of forward guidance. And I've kind of had the stance you know, over the last few months, Q, I think that they know that we're headed for a recession. I think you could look at a host of historical references that all say we're going into a recession. You know, the, it, I posted a chart this morning that I saw from a, an interview with Stanley Druckenmiller, where he pointed out that every time in history that we've gotten above 5% CPI, the only remedies were jacking interest rates up higher than inflation or a recession. And the only exceptions were when we were in the middle of war, in the middle of World War II and in the middle of the Korean War when we were spending a lot and we actually avoided a recession for at least you know, a year and a half. But every other instance in the past, the only remedy has been recession and or jacking up rates. Well, they're not going to jack rates up to 8%. So the only other remedy at that point is a recession. Likewise, if you look at their dot plot, their, the summary of economic projections that comes out of the FOMC, where they list where they think different economic indicators are going to go over the next couple of years, one of the things they mention is employment. And they think unemployment is only going to go up 0.5% from now to the end of their hiking cycle, this like plan that they have. But if you look back through history, and I posted this chart a couple of weeks ago, every single time that unemployment has risen by 0.5% from its low, every time there has been a recession going all the way back to like 1950. So when you think about the Fed saying these things, and I know Yellen's not the Fed, she's the Treasury, but they're all part of the same gang, right? When you hear them saying things like, we believe the economy is strong, we think it can tolerate all this hiking, we think that we're going to avoid a recession, all of history is suggesting that they are dead wrong and that their statements are not backed by historical data, which means that they are they must be backed by either feelings or just a desire to manipulate sentiment. So that's where I that's where my stance is. I think you're 100% right. It's just window dressing because if they were to just come out and say, "Listen guys, the economy's headed into the shitter and we're probably in a recession now uh, and it'll be really obvious in a couple more weeks." If they actually said that, which is probably very true, the market would reprice itself into hell with the quickness, right? It would be violent and it would be swift. And I think that could lead to us to an illiquid treasury market. It could lead to blowouts of corporate bond spreads, something that actually forces them to act with more urgency, with more alacrity. And I don't think they want that because inflation is still so high because of the situation I was just describing, where they're forced to ease into stubbornly elevated costs. They'd like to delay that inevitability as long as possible. So they're just going to keep putting lipstick on the pig until the pig kicks them in the face. Now, is this though, like, let me, let's backtrack this a little bit and I'll start by saying like, I believe we are already in the midst of a recession. 
I don't need to wait until Thursday when the official reading comes out for Q2. And then I don't need Yellen or the Biden administration to move the goalpost and say, like, actually, no, the group of seven economists will dictate to us whether or not we're in a recession. I personally just believe we are in a recession. However, that's starting to feel like the majority. Dylan, you posted, I believe, last week on Twitter three different questions to just the Twitter sphere asking, do you? Do people think the bottom in equities, Bitcoin, and bonds separately are in? And an overwhelming majority said no to all three questions. The markets, in my limited experience of trying to trade and invest in them, have tended to go the exact opposite direction of where the majority thinks. And if the majority of people think we are in a recession, and the majority of people think that the bottoms of all these different things are not yet in, does that not leave the possibility that I, don't, I feel weird saying it because I don't genuinely believe these things, but is it possible that we actually may somehow skirt a recession, that we may have actually already seen the bottom of everything and that possibly Luke Roman is right and that August is going to be when they reverse and when they reverse, everything will just shoot straight back up, almost like a K-shaped recovery 2.0. Yeah, I'll just say that the sample size is probably pretty biased in that in the in those polls. But I'll let TX rip on that and you know the probability that we start going up only again and we avoid a recession somehow. Yeah, that's not my base case. And to be fair to Luke's thesis, Luke Groman's thesis, I think he's been pretty clear in saying, while I do believe that calling for end of August is maybe a little aggressive, he has said that. It, it will be because something unravels extremely quickly and we don't have, we haven't even seen it yet. Like we're, we just see the poke of the iceberg through the water, but he believes that the, something is going to unravel in the markets very quickly over the next couple of months and that will force them to pivot. It won't just be that we're in the kind of conditions we're in today, but they just kind of look around and maybe think inflation is getting better and we go, well, we can't keep tightening, guys. We got to turn this ship around. He thinks something significantly bad is going to take place between now and that of that event horizon. I don't know what that is. I think, you know, I listened to a conversation with him and Lynn Alden this morning, and I think he was focusing on the treasury markets. And if you look at the move index, which is like the VIX for the bond market, it is really elevated and it's almost at 2020 levels. It's been moving more slowly than it did in 2020. Somehow the market is remaining solvent, even though it's probably the least liquid it has been in a very long time. So that's definitely concerning. And you have to imagine they're paying close attention to that. But, you know, just in terms of have we bottomed, could we avoid a recession? I don't know that we can avoid a recession at this point. Just based on historical trends, that, that would be a severe outlier case especially when you consider that the Fed has never been this late in beginning to raise interest rates into an economic slowdown. Like you already have PMIs rolling over super hard. You know, there's so many other aspects of the economy that have begun to really grind their brakes or hit the brakes, but they waited to begin raising rates until we were already in that phase. And so they're considerably behind the curve here. And when you think about and you look at past recessionary periods, there's usually a couple of more shoes that drop, more things that unfold. And those two things, one of them relates to unemployment. Now, I know we talked a lot about the labor market changing. Maybe it's a little different from how it was a few years ago, but we still have seen zero movement in unemployment. It's absolutely flatlined since March at 3.6%. And also earnings have not really responded to the fact that the market is you know, reached bear market territory. It's still like 15, 18% down from the end. You know, consumers are getting squeezed, man. I mean, if you look at retail sales, nominal versus inflation adjusted, one of them is still going up nominal sales. The other one is flat, completely flat inflation adjusted. So people are spending more money and it's making companies be able to post positive, you know, earnings reports, but the actual units being moved is less. People are taking home less. If you look at wages, average hourly earnings over the last few years, both real and nominal wages are positive. People are getting a raise at like 5%, but their, their actual real wages are negative. People have been taking a pay cut since April of last year before we got 
high inflation prints. If you go look at real average hourly earnings, it has been negative since April 2021. So people have experienced more than a calendar year of taking an actual real pay cut, even though their nominal earnings have grown. And so like th that can only be sustained for so long. And in the past, when we get close to these recessionary periods and you start seeing all these indicators flashing red, earnings always comes down. And we haven't seen that yet, especially in inflationary spikes. If you look at the 40s, if you look at the 70s, when we had big inflationary spikes, earnings, corporate earnings came down noticeably and unemployment rose. And neither one of those two things have happened yet, which suggests to me that we still have another leg of this um, story to play out, whatever form that takes. I don't know if that means everything, you know, all assets nuke and a whole other, you know, level of hell. I don't know, but it, those things have not played out just yet. And it seems to me that an unemployment at the very least has to change when you look at initial claims rising since March. Uh, they've it, It's up, uh, I think, 50% from the lows. And you look at uh, the part-time for uh, part-time for economic reasons on the employment report that's going up that usually happens before unemployment waves so th there's just a lot of things flashing out there and i find it very difficult to build a realistic case that we avoid a recession at this point building off that if you're just thinking about risk assets whether it's bitcoin whether it's equities you know, there's a lot of talk and, you know, we, I think we just did witness the biggest capitulation, absolute capitulation event in Bitcoin's history. I mean, in, in absolute size, it's no question. In relative size, you could, you know, say, you know, certain events were, you know, bigger. Like, I mean, March of 2020, we nuked 50% in, you know, a 24-hour period. So obviously, but just in, in absolute terms, the amount of forced selling that we saw and absorption that occurred is just massive, right? In the scale of billions and billions of dollars. But I think what people are discounting is like, okay, someone asks, who's left to sell? Well, if we enter a recession, who's left to sell is people that want to, you know, eat or put a house over their head or, you know, right. I, like, I, I understand that the billionaires of the world and, you know, Michael Saylor or maybe not Michael Saylor because <laughs> or Michael Shadji because they have a debt structure, but, you know, these, these big whales aren't going to sell to put, you know, to put food on their plate, but, you know, your pleb stacker or, you know, your your retail investor that's just, you know, trying to build a retirement portfolio, like if you get laid off or just, you know, things happen, right? A recession is, you know, a lot of ugly outcomes occur, not just in the US, but globally, right? You're going to need liquidity. And it's just a matter of prices set at the margin for every asset. So it's like, okay, who's the marginal buyer versus the marginal seller? Well, we know in Bitcoin, but really more so in equities, but also there's a big DCA kind of culture or, uh, you know, a bunch of people dollar cost averaging Bitcoin every single day, week just buying. But a lot of these flows for these asset classes are just based on, you know, passive allocation. And then that requires a job, you know, that requires your, you know, your income to there, for there to be a difference between your income and your expenses. Right. And so when you see people's margins, whether it's at a corporate level or just consumer level really get squeezed because of this inflationary impulse. And then now we're starting to see the labor market turnover at the same time that, you know, you've seen the wealth effect just killed the asset side of people's balance sheets at the same time where the liability side of people's balance sheets and the debt service that you have to pay is growing because of interest expense, right? All these things are saying, hey, like, you know, we've seen a pretty big capitulation. We've seen a pretty big drawdown, especially for Bitcoin. But, you know, where's that marginal buyer? And, you know, are we sure we're not going to test that level again and potentially go lower, right? Like a lot of the, like TX, you were at Glassnode, a lot of the on-chain stuff we look at, like, in terms of cyclical kind of uh, metrics and all of that, right? It's like, okay, wow, this is capitulation. We're below the average cost basis of Bitcoin holders, like realized price. You know, is this the bottom generational buying, buying opportunity every time it's happened before that? But like we were never in the midst or actually headed into a global recession before, right. you know, as this, is, this has already happened, but we haven't even had potentially the worst of the economic outcomes yet. That is so true. And that's a conversation, particularly as it relates to identifying value zones and bottoms and things with like on-chain metrics is, you know, everything we have on Bitcoin is predicated upon its existence in a long-term secular bull market where, you know, mistakes were forgiven or optimism is rewarded. And that behavior is vastly different from the 
non-accommodative environment we're in now. And I think you made a great point, like who's left to sell? Well, that's a question you ask in a trending market, right? That's a question you ask when there is a bid under the price and there is an appetite for speculation. There is a desire to take on risk, to take on leverage, to bet on price. Like you need that kind of, you need that, those ingredients in the pot. And because of, you know, everything we were talking about, a lot of that has been removed and people's discretionary budgets are squeezed and co companies' discretionary budgets are squeezed. Funds are being squeezed. And so there's th this idea that there's all this money just sitting on the sidelines, like waiting to pour back into things at the furthest end of the risk curve, just, you know, at the first hint of dovish to me, doesn't really ring true with the landscape that we're looking at here, particularly when you think about how hard the average consumer has been squeezed. And, you know, I hear a lot about how, well, the, people just have so much cash. They're sitting on so much money. Everything's going to be fine. But, you know, you have to really look at the distribution of that money. There's been a lot of different reports, but you, there's a chart you can look at on the Federal Reserve website called checkable deposits and currency. And that's basically like people's checking accounts, their cash, like the closest thing to their liquid money that they have in commercial banks. And the distribution of it is, yes, there's more of it now than there used to be, but the vast majority of it is owned by the top 10%. And the bottom 90% have lost a significant portion of market share. And they actually now have the lowest market share of that of checkable deposits and currency since I can see back when the data began in like 1990. So yeah, there's a bunch of money, but it's not evenly distributed. It's sitting at the upper echelons of the income brackets with people who have a lower marginal propensity to spend that money, right? So the, there's there are imbalances in where all of this like extra cash, so to speak, is sitting in the market. Whereas the, the most people are like what you described, Dylan, they're worried about like, how are they going to eat? Am I still going to have a job? And their allocation to the market is predicated upon the existence of that job and of discretionary income, neither of which seems super secure over the next six months to 12 months for a lot of people on the margins. Yeah, that's also, I think, worth pointing out, you know, all of us here at Bitcoin Magazine, at, you know, BM Pro, TX yourself included, I would definitely assume are huge Bitcoin bulls over the long term. I don't even assume that I know that, but like, let's just be objective and let's be realistic here. And we've talked about this in, in previous shows. The last few months of just events and, and turmoil in the crypto, you know, I focus on Bitcoin, but let's just, you know, the broader crypto industry have been not great, right? And so although we view Bitcoin over the long term as this pristine asset, you know, immutable 21 million, we know the drill, right? Absolutely scarce, absolute scarcity for the first time. We, we, you know, we discovered it with Bitcoin, whether it was invented or discovered, right? We all know this. And like, over the long term, we have pristine monetary asset that has basically an engineered production as a production cost engineered to, to increase in perpetuity, right? But over the short term, Bitcoin is trading like the riskiest of risk assets, I guess, maybe not riskiest, you have some, you know, altcoins or maybe some low cap stocks or whatever, but it's hyper volatile. It's basically beta on equities. And it's uncovered that all this fraud and hidden off balance sheet leverage existed in the industry. Right. And so for people to say like, you know, even if the fed pivots, but let's just assume the fed's going to, you know, wait for some more pain for there to be a bottom to be in, you need some big buyers to come in and for all the legacy funds and participants in the sidelines. If you're talking about that top 10 percentile of income earners or, you know, of asset holders that have all the cash in the economy that have all that dry powder, for them to say, hey, I'm going to go make a sizable allocation to this, you know, hyper volatile asset that doesn't even produce an income stream, right? I understand the long-term bull case and I've, you know, I articulated to a lot of those people, I, at least I attempt to, but at the current moment, right? And I understand that, you know, Bitcoin is black market money, et cetera, right? But the regulation or the lack of regulation in this space, and I'm not calling for more regulation. I'm just saying this is the reality here. A lot of fraud and a lot of questionable business was kind of uncovered over the last two months. And to think that Bitcoin, you know, this far, you know, far right risk, you know, of risk assets is going to all of a sudden catch a monstrous bid and shoot to all time highs or, you know, V-shaped recovery like it did in the summer of 2021. I think it's just, you know, to put it, 
frank is somewhat delusional at the current moment. I mean, I would love to be wrong as a Bitcoin holder, right? <laughs> but like, just let, let's be objective here. It's going to take some time. I mean, we've had, for the most part, a pretty large scale price capitulation event. I think Sam and I have talked about and we've put some pieces out. I think what we're in for, whether we go a lot lower and you know, we could always chop you know, another 50% lower. But what we're in for now is the time-based capitulation where, you know, the speculators, which have already basically all of them have gone, but, you know, the frauds, they're all getting washed out. The real builders are here to stay. They're actually building something meaningful long-term. And, you know, whenever equities do get bid again, whenever up only happens, yeah, Bitcoin will, you know, catch a bit as well. But really we're in for, we're in for some time here to wash out, the, you know, the excess of this mania bull run we just had. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And, you know, it's hard to have this conversation with, depending on, on the audience of Bitcoiners, I suppose. Some Bitcoiners, it's hard to have this conversation with. But the when you think about it, what we're engaging in right now is a contraction of the money supply, which is the opposite of debasement. And debasement is what Bitcoin is meant to protect against, right? And so if, if fiat is not being debased currently, but is being the opposite of that, then during this period of time, it necessarily weakens that particular value proposition of Bitcoin, that aspect of it. There are other aspects, obviously, but the one that, that I think people get to pay the most attention to is it an inflation hedge. I would say the inflation is monetary inflation that it's hedging against, not prices going up, uh, but it's a hedge against monetary inflation against debasement of the currency. And right now we're not, we're seeing the opposite of that. So I think that it makes sense that this kind of environment is not one that is very welcoming to things like Bitcoin or gold for that matter, even though gold obviously has its own problems. But, you know, for that kind of appetite you're talking about to come back just by the Fed, you know, appearing more accommodative, I think is a little bit of a stretch just because, because of the other risks to the economy. I think that, you know... I don't really know what I'm trying to articulate exactly here, but I just, I think that it makes sense for Bitcoin not to exactly be the flavor of the month in this particularly in particular environment, but to excel dramatically as soon as debasement, you know, is added back to the menu. Did we lose Dylan? Sorry, I'm, I'm back here. <laughs> Other runner, get something real quick. Q, you want to just fire off the next question? I missed the last like minute there. No, you're fine. I was trying to find where this tab was because I had too many tabs open. I want to talk a little bit now about you know the upcoming Fed meeting this week. We're supposed to hear final verdict on if we're going to get a 75 or 100 basis point hike. We've talked a lot about what the Fed fund rate sits at now. I believe it's at about 1.5% to 1.75. Stanley Drunken Miller has also come out and said, you know, the Fed can't really afford to go past that 3.5 number as the cost of those interest payments would just put them so underwater at that point. TXMC, you alluded to the fact that there are only a couple of different solutions. One of them, raise rates higher than inflation, another one just let the economy sort of crater into a recession. Where are your expectations on this upcoming week and just sort of the Fed's upcoming sort of positioning, if you will, and posturing of what they're going to have to do for the remainder of the year? Yeah, I, th I think 75 is pretty much a lock. You know, I'd be surprised if they did something other than that. And that would put the Fed funds rate or about two and a half percent, which is where it peaked in 2018. And it's not that far away from the two-year yield at that point. And when you look back in history, uh, every time the Fed funds rate has met the two-year yield in a hiking cycle, it's been the end of the hikes, going all the way back 40 years. So it would seem like with the two-year currently sitting, where is it? I think it's around 3%. I don't have my chart in front of me right now. It was at like 3.1%, 3% the other day. It seems like the bond market is having a significant problem pricing in the actual target of the Fed funds rate by the end of their plans, right? No matter how much they scream about three and a half percent, three and point eight percent, whatever numbers they're throwing around, the bond market just can't seem to get there. It seems to be calling scoreboard on the Fed's plans. And so I think that there's some signal in there. And, you know, as 
We just got a 9.1 CPI print. I think it's reasonable to assume that the next print in August for the current month will probably not be that high. You know, when you see what's going on with commodity prices, with oil prices, with gasoline, everything, you know, major inputs to CPI are coming down. I think it makes sense that the print will be high, but it's not going to be 9.1. And, you know, that will probably give them a little bit of breathing room to not necessarily feel like they have to hike 75 basis points again. But I agree with Stanley Druckenmiller that they will reach a point before long where the cost of maintaining the debt is simply too high. Because we, we let's think about it, we've got thirty trillion dollars of public debt, and you know they're they're paying on in an ongoing basis for this. People think we never pay off the debt. That's not true. We're paying on it all the time. It's just that we're constantly adding more of it, right? So the, the load never actually goes away, but we pay every month. And in the month of May, we paid fifty billion dollars uh, on interest expense alone, which is the most we've ever paid in a single month. Last year, the federal government paid close to 390 billion 385 billion dollars just to keep the debt from defaulting just to pay interest expense that's more than half of the defense budget and they did that with an average interest rate from on all public debt of only about 1.6% and that's across all the maturities in the public debt and they're always rolling that debt over into new maturities they're constantly reinvesting it every month different pieces of it and as those as rates go higher and stay elevated as they are stay higher than the zero bound that necessarily puts a slow upward pressure on the average interest rate of all the public debt so the cost of it naturally goes up and it's going up faster than the rate at which we are whittling down the debt via the liquidation of government debt playbook we talked about earlier so the, there's an actual accelerating cost to maintaining the debt that we have and to not defaulting on it. And when you think about a withering economy, which has few less consumer spending powers GDP, it's like 68, 69% of GDP, more than two thirds of the economy is people spending money. And so when the economy is weakening, when the costs are elevating, when businesses are letting people go or talking about freezing hiring, you know, there's a lot of, there's less, there's more trepidation and there's less spending. And as a result, tax receipts weaken. Now, they just took in a bunch of money from the 2021 tax year, but over the next few months, because the market has been in decline the entire year, tax receipts will necessarily start declining. And they're declining into rising Social Security costs, elevated defense spending. There's only so many places they can really cut corners before at some point they're required to become the buyer of last resort and monetize their debt to pay their obligations. And I think that wall where they have to start making serious decisions about, well, do we choose not to pay for our defense spending? Do we choose to default on US treasuries? Not gonna happen. Or do we print and create some money to pay off these obligations and kick the can of responsibility once more? I think that they will do that and I think that probably will come in before they get anywhere close to their three and a half percent target that they set for themselves. What I can't understand is I don't have the data in front of me, but I saw, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago, I saw a, a U.S. debt by maturities chart, you know, just a graphic of, you know, what debt they have, the short end and the long end and how much of that they had. And I can't understand for the life of me when rates for on a 30 year debt was, you know, 100 bips, 150 bips, why they didn't roll more of that debt over in the long term, right? I mean, obviously there, there had to be willing buyers there, but a lot of that debt and, you know, post COVID when rates were still low and CPI expectations were still very low, they just, they, they issued short-term maturity debt, which I can't understand for the life. It's like, you know, what, what are you guys doing? Why wouldn't you roll that over 10, 10 year, 20 year, 30 years? If you wanted to kick the can, right? Like, I don't understand why policymakers, why the treasury, I'm not sure who's calling the shots there, but why the treasury didn't roll that over to longer term maturities. Yeah, it's a good question. And I'm not super satisfied with my opinion on why I think that is, but it's something I probably would look into. I probably want to look into that a little more and try to figure it out. I guess just lastly, your charts, your charts are fantastic on some of that stuff. Sam and I have been, been in awe on some of that, like the treasury, the 
and interest expense and that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I think we're close to wrapping up here. We got a couple more minutes. Want to thank you for coming on and giving, you know, kind of ripping with us. This is a YouTube live, so we'll have a link if you want to share that with, you know, your Twitter followers. So we'll probably post this on our on our Substack as well for our subscribers. And if you just, you know, want to give one more handoff into to what you do, you know, Alpha Beta Soup and, and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Always great to talk to you. That's the first time we've all been on video chat together, so that's pretty cool. Usually I'm just on Twitter spaces with y'all. But yeah, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm always happy to come back on here. If you're listening to me and you enjoy what we've been talking about, I post content about this all the time on Twitter. And I have a YouTube channel called Alpha Beta Soup, which you can get to in my Twitter bio or go to YouTube and look for Alpha Beta Soup with TXMC. You'll find me. And I try to talk about what's going on in the economy. And it's centered around Bitcoin. Bitcoin is kind of the nucleus from which all of my economic analysis, you know, springs forth. And so I try to make it entertaining and educational and you can just kind of see where my mind is going because I, you know, I, I'm not a, I don't have a traditional finance background. I barely even graduated from high school. I'm just trying to educate myself on the, this fascinating world that I live in. So come along with me and, you know, we'll figure some things out. And the last thing I'll just say is, you know, there's a lot of, it's a lot of uncertainty in the economy. Obviously we, we just spent an hour talking about how it's a big shit storm and no one really knows what's going to happen. But one thing that I have high, very high conviction in is the cyclical nature of humans and their relationship with paper money. It usually always ends in a failure of that money and a return to hard assets and to sound money by civilization. This has happened over and over again for millennia. And I strongly believe we are in a phase of that happening for our civilization now. And for the first time in our history, we have a digital commodity available as an escape valve in Bitcoin. I think it stands to benefit tremendously. And while the timeline is very uncertain and it's going to be nonlinear, it's not if you know, if you look at a chart of the Marx to gold in Weimar, Germany, it's nonlinear. But I do believe it will happen in our lifetimes. And the real asymmetry is knowing that end game far. And when you think about the fact that there's only 1% of U.S. net worth that is allocated to the crypto space broadly, according to Bank of America, we're still extremely early. So that gives me high conviction. And that's the basis of my whole thesis. So, yeah. What a way to end it. Boom. Dylan, Sam, do you want to remind everyone about Bitcoin Magazine Pro? Yeah, if you want to kind of, you know, get more content like this, like we talked about today. We post some similar stuff around Bitcoin, macroeconomics, derivatives, the whole nine yards. That's what we do at Bitcoin Magazine Pro. That's what's similar to what TXMC does with Alpha Beta Soup. So check us out, bitcoinmagazinepro.com. We're putting out this content and we'll probably relay this over to you guys on the Substack later today or tomorrow. So appreciate everyone tuning in. This was a fun rip. All right. Uh, I will remind everyone, TXMC, I always love your Twitter threads and I love your content. I'm so grateful that you came on camera and joined us today. I'll probably hound you for one of our next spaces or just bug you to come here. Thank you for coming. Dylan and Sam, as always, it's a pleasure to get to talk to Dylan. Sam, it was lovely to see your pretty face. Subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro. There's a free tier. The content they give you guys and the work they put into this is truly remarkable and it's worth your time. Oh, <laughs>